Good morning. Uh, I want to begin by introducing uh, my father to you. He's here. Can you stand up, Dad? Stand up right there, Michael Allen Shemleski. Give him applause. Uh, that's my dad. He is a husband, a father of three boys, a father-in-law of two daughters, and he is a grandfather to three of the most beautiful grandchildren you'd ever meet. Now, two of them are my boys, but that's besides the point. They are beautiful. He's an MIS manager at Tescom, so if you're in that field, you can talk to him after if you need some advice. But I love my dad, and there are some words that come to mind when I think about my dad, and I wrote some of them down here. Responsible, loving, hardworking, serves others above himself, smart, has fun, makes wise decisions, mediocre at playing Scrabble. <laughs> but the thing I love about my dad is that the lessons that he teaches me about responsibility and about love, about making wise decisions and having fun, is he doesn't teach them to me just verbally. If we were to use time-lapse photography like they do with the, the weather, you know, the meteorologists, how they do that, you get to see a whole day in like 30 seconds, you get to see all the clouds in the sun, and then it rains, and then you get to see the clouds in the sun. If we were to do that for my dad's life, and I took one of you, an impartial observer, and you watched that time-lapse photography of my dad's life, I would guess, I'm really convinced that you would write down some of these same words to describe my dad. Because he doesn't just say these things, he lives them. It's who he is. He's a responsible man, and he shows that in how he lives. He has the right priorities, and you can see that in the way that he lives. My dad's lessons in his life speak volumes. And today we're going to take a look at two men whose lives speak volumes about who they are. You can flip with me to Acts chapter 24. We're continuing on in a series, a study of the Acts of the Apostles. It's the church on fire. I want to remind you of a couple things as we get going. This started way back when, in Acts chapter 1, and the, the apostles, Jesus' followers, are commissioned at that time to be witnesses in their local area, in surrounding areas, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. And we're taking a, our, our opportunity this day is to look at Paul, who is one of those followers of Jesus, being a witness, giving testimony about Jesus, about who he is, the life that he lived, the death that he died for us, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again and ascended and is seated at the right hand of God. And Paul is one of those witnesses giving testimony about Jesus in his local area, in the surrounding area, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. Last week we looked at crazy circumstances surrounding Paul. Remember his nephew who just came on the scene discovered, uh, uncovered a plot where they were going to try and kill Paul. Some of the religious leaders of the day were going to try and kill Paul. And his nephew finds out about it. We knew nothing about his nephew up until this point. And we looked, overall, last week, we looked at circumstances. Crazy circumstances occurring in Paul's life. And then I encourage you to look at circumstances in your own life. And how you view those circumstances. 
Do you view them as random, just by chance? Do you view them as some sort of impersonal power or force, I said, like Star Wars controls that? Or would you view your circumstances through the lens of God, that God creates circumstances, that God has providential control, we, we called it. We pick up in Acts chapter 24, verse 1, continuing on with our interaction with Paul. He had just been brought to Felix, the governor of this area, and that's where you pick it up. Verse 1, five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. He said, we have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation, everywhere, and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. Okay, so where we've been is, Paul has been come to Jerusalem. It's only been about 12 days. Even though we've been here for a couple weeks, it's only been about 12 days that he's been there. And just in that time, they've captured him, tried to kill him, this, com this Roman commander comes in. He wants peace, and there's all this riot going on. He tries to secure peace by pulling Paul out and finding out who he is. And as we've looked in past weeks, he had no luck doing that. He just could not figure out who Paul was, why everybody was out to get him. And so he, to provide for himself, safety for himself, sends him on to Felix, a bigwig governor at this time, okay? So when we've moved down to Caesarea, we've, we've moved from Jerusalem, which is a religious capital, to Caesarea, which at that time is the political capital, our Washington, D.C., that's Caesarea at this time. That's where the Romans kind of camped out because they were control, controlling this place, this area. And I kind of envision something similar to like the O.J. Simpson trial taking place here where like cameras are just on these guys as they're coming down to Caesarea. You know, you got the high priest. And he's kind of clothed with elders, you know, bigwigs of the church coming behind him. And then they got their hotshot lawyer who's going to be there and present this case. And just a lot of pretrial happenings occurring. And then Tertullus gets up. And he presents their case before Felix. Now commentators will say this is a pretty weak case. So he puts in some fluff there. Did you catch all that? Everywhere and in every way. Most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. Just puffing up the governor's ego. You know, how could this guy choose against us? We're just lavishing him on all this praise on him. So we got to see what happens. Here are the three charges that are presented against Paul. Why he is such a troublemaker. Why he should be killed. Number one, stirring up riots. Stirring up riots. 
Romans don't like that. They want peace in the provinces that they're looking over, that they're in charge of, that they have authority. They want peace. Paul, since Paul came, there's been no peace. He's a troublemaker. He's, a, he's stirring up riots. There's charge number one. Number two, they claim he's a ringleader of a Nazarene sect. Okay, there are different sects, different things, different groups, religious groups of that day. And here Tertullus is trying to categorize Paul, trying to attach him with one of those sects. You remember those guys who did that thing way back when? Yeah, Paul's like them. And you didn't like them, so you shouldn't like him. And then thirdly, the third charge, attempting to desecrate the temple. And we looked at that recently, and that's a no-no. Don't desecrate the temple of the Jews. There's three charges that we're bringing against Paul. Therefore, he should be disciplined, if not killed. How does Paul respond? What is his defense? Let's look at that. Verse 10. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings I was ceremonial, ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there, but there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they have found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. These chapters that we're looking at this week and the next couple weeks are uh, viewed as the forensic chapters. There's very, uh, very systematic arguments being played out. It's, it's very much like a courtroom drama. And here, Paul, one by one, deals with the accusations. To charge number one, he pleads to stirring up riots, being a troublemaker, not guilty. And we just have to look at verses 11 through 13. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers, they didn't find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. He's basically saying, go talk to people. If you want to verify this, just go talk to people. I've been here for 12 days and there's just no evidence of me stirring up riots, stirring up crowds being a troublemaker, to charge number two, being a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. How does he respond? Not guilty. Look at verses 14 and 15. I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, 
they didn't have a church back then the way represented those who followed Jesus Christ. Which they, these leaders, called a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. Basically, Paul's saying, these guys that are making the accusations, I agree with what they believe. We agree about the same things that's written in the law and the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. I'm not a ringleader of a, a sect way over here. I identify myself with these guys that are making these accusations. To charge number three, attempting to desecrate the temple. Paul pleads not guilty. Look at verses 17 and 18. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean. I was not trying to desecrate the temple. I went through a purification ceremony to make sure that if I did go near the temple, I was clean. By your standards, by what you require, I was clean. And I have witnesses. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. And he could have left it at that. Each charge, boom. This is what I had to say in my defense. To the charge, I have my defense. But then he pulls out what I'm calling his ace in the hole. A clear conscience. Paul now lets his life speak. Just like my dad's life speaks volumes about who he is. Paul lets his life speak. Acts 24, verse 16, he says, So I strive to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Now, when he says, I'm striving to keep my conscience clear, he's not saying he's perfect. He's not saying that he's never sinned in his life. But he's watching his life. He's guarding his life. He doesn't want others to stumble because of the way he's living. Stumble, uh, not believe in God. Not trust in God because of the way Paul's living. Paul doesn't want that to happen, so he's guarding his life. He's trying to keep a clean conscience. He says this two other times when he's trying to make a defense before these people that are bringing these accusations. Acts 23 verse 1 says, Paul looks straight at the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders that are trying to bring these charges against them, and he says, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. And again in Chapter 25, which will come up uh, next week. Chapter 25, verse 8. Then Paul makes his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Look at my life and try and decide if these charges that you accuse me of are true. And then he adds a piece. Verse 19. Okay, if they haven't made a very solid accusation. So he's going to invite them to make a stronger accusation. Verse 19 says, Hey, but there are some Jews from the province of Asia. By the way, that's where I've been for the last decade, if you didn't know, these 12 days. Okay, I have a whole decade of my life. Why don't you go find some people that I was hanging with for the last 10 years and see if they have anything to add to the story. Some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. He's saying, hey, these 12 days, they're nothing. But look at my life. Look at the past 10 years. 
and try and decide based on that if these charges still ring true. I'll try and make a bigger case against myself. I'll try and bring more accusation. Bring these other people who have seen me day in and day out how I've lived and see if they can accuse me of anything. But they're not there. And Paul has brought forth a solid defense that he isn't who these people say he is. He's saying, look at my life. Pay attention to my life. It speaks volumes. Acts 24, verses 22 through 27. Continuing on. We've seen one side of the story. Now what is a possible other side? We've seen a man of good conscience, a man living a life where he seeks to have a clear conscience. Now we're going to look at Felix. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, well acquainted with these followers of Christ, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion, one of the guards, to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. We've looked at Paul, who has a clear conscience before God and before man. And then we're given this example of Felix. When Paul comes, it speaks about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. Felix becomes afraid. Sends him out of his presence. Doesn't want to hear about that. Doesn't want to hear about Jesus Christ and what he did. Living with a guilty conscience. Why is that? If you were to look up in different historians of this day, they look at Felix as ruthless, cruel, an abuser of people, using his power to lord over other people, to serve his own needs. Just a ruthless man. And we can see it here, just in this brief story. We get to see, we're given vision of that. He holds Paul for two years. Two years. What did he claim? He said, when Lysias, the commander, comes, hey, I'll decide your case then. But it doesn't happen. For two years, he holds Paul. And his greed comes out, too. Greedy man, inviting Paul. Keep wanting him to come back, not to hear about righteousness and a judgment to come, or about self-control, hoping that Paul would bribe him, give him some money so he could get out, continue on with his life. For Paul to be bringing offerings to the poor, bringing money to the churches, he must have some money. He must be a man of means. So if I keep inviting him back, maybe he'll bribe me. It doesn't happen. And just like Paul's life spoke volumes about who he was, giving him the capacity to say, I 
Have a clear conscience before God. Felix is just the opposite. The example of a guilty conscience. His life also speaks volumes about who he is. That's why I've titled this message, A Tale of Two Consciences. One clear, the other not. Both their lives speak volumes. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 17, Paul, in in another context, trying to show the importance of our lives and how much our life speaks, says this thing, Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I am sending you to Timothy. I am sending to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. What's Timothy going to do? He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. He's not just going to bring Paul's teaching. He's going to bring a reminder of Paul's way of life in Christ Jesus. Our lives speak volumes. Paul's life spoke volumes. My dad's life speaks volumes. So what now? It's not just what we believe or say we believe, but also how we choose to live our lives that powerfully demonstrates our convictions. Just what Tim said in that song. The only truth that's really true is truth that I live. So with that being said, what about me? Let's start here. What about me? I'll give you a glimpse into my own life. Sometimes as pastors, we're called to preach on passages and preach messages that we might not be ready to preach. If you were to look and glimpse into my own life, where I stood, this might be a little bit beyond where I'm ready to preach because God has convicted me in one area specifically. Uh, I struggle with eating food and uh, drinking pop. And it might seem strange to you. None of you. Some of you might not struggle with that. That might be the first thing from your mind. But if you sit me in front of a case of Mountain Dew, I mean, my self-control can go out the window. I mean, I just, I mean, isn't Mountain Dew just, anybody? Mountain Dew is just a wonderful pop. And, uh, and I like drinking it. And I like food. I don't like fruit food or vegetable food. I like food food, you know, like McDonald's food. That's the kind of food that I really enjoy. But God has convicted me of that in recent weeks, and I have uh, made a commitment, and my wife's uh, checking in on me. I've made a commitment since uh, June 3rd to go off pop. Are, are you feeling my pain? I mean, <laughs> seriously. I, to Neil Ziegler, I was over at lunch at her house on Tuesday, and she offered me a Mountain Dew. And I turned it down. I can't believe that. No, come on, come on. But that's an area of my life where I struggle to maintain self-control because instead of letting Jesus be my satisfaction like Michael was talking about, I like that, you know, you can get a sense, a a, a feeling from food and being full. I don't know if you've experienced that. I'm guessing you have. You get that kind of contentment in that, "Mm." it's just, it's just good, you know? But sometimes I take that to an unhealthy level, and I want to admit that to you today. And I want to point uh, myself and and you, if it's helpful, to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 31 through 33. I'm going to read it. I don't have it on the overhead. I mean, if this isn't for me, I don't know. 
So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Continuing on, do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Whatever I do, I want to do it for the glory of God. And God has shown me that in this area, I need help. And I need, to, I need self-control, like Paul was preaching about. And so I've invited uh, some people in my life to hold me accountable to that. And at the end of this month, uh, we'll see. I'm not convinced that I'm going to jump right back into pop, so we'll see. Check in on me. See what I'm doing. Now what about you? Where are you at in all this? Some of you might feel like you're right where Paul is. That you've been trying very hard to guard your life to protect yourself from this world, from sin. And I believe that some of you might be able to say that before God and before men, you are living with a clear conscience. So in, in preaching this, I'm not tr trying, to, trying to create fictitious convictions for you. That you should have a conviction about food and drink when that's not what the Holy Spirit's communicating to you. Others of you, I'm guessing, might be struggling with something. Maybe something's been brought to mind. Just as I've been speaking, maybe the Holy Spirit has brought something to mind. I wrote down a couple that maybe, maybe have come to mind. What you're watching in TV or in movies. The amount of money you're spending. The amount of money you're saving. The amount of money you might be giving. Over-exercising. As well as under-exercising. Maybe God, for the first time in your life, is communicating to you that maybe there is something to this God thing. You're feeling some tension, some anxiety maybe about who God is, about who Jesus is. Starting a relationship with Christ maybe. Sometimes the Bible doesn't state the specific thing that we're struggling with. And so I just ask you to examine your own life, what you might be struggling with. And then Maybe do as I did. Invite somebody that you feel close to. Uh, in this case, it was my wife, Jill. And ask, you know, do you see this in my life? You know, I seem to be struggling with it. Is that apparent to you? And it might be or it might not. Um, but if you feel it, ask them to hold you accountable to uh, taking a step towards this, to, to bringing forth a clear conscience. I want to read for you from uh, The Church of Irresistible Influence, written by Robert Lewis. Uh, he cites the book, uh, The Second Coming of the Church by Barna, and just how big lifestyle is in our witness for Christ. Remember, Paul is being a witness for Jesus, and he wants his life to be a testimony, to be a powerful message so that people will follow Jesus. And here's what Barna, after looking at 131 different measures of attitudes, behaviors, values, and beliefs between Christians and non-Christians, this is his conclusion. This is Barna's conclusion. Okay, got all this research. In the aspects of lifestyle, where Christians can have their greatest impact on the lives of non-Christians, there are no visible differences between the two segments. Now, I don't know what that communicates to you, but it communicates to me 
that there's probably be, there's people in this world that are struggling with self-control when it comes to eating and drinking. And that's my struggle right now. And so I want to get to a place, I want to, by God's grace, get to a place where I have self-control in that area. And hopefully God can use that to powerfully speak to other people. Maybe it's something I said, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it's a difficult coworker. Maybe it's a habitual sin that you're struggling with. I want to leave you with a couple questions. How I envision this in my own life and in the life of this church is we want to become a church on fire for God. We want to be excited for God, tell other people about God and what a difference he can make in our lives. But when these things come, for me, this eating and drinking thing, I'm trying to like light myself on fire while I'm pouring water on myself. And so what I want to do is stop pouring water on myself so I can really be on fire for God. And I think that was Paul's mindset. Being on fire for God by living a life worthy of the calling he's received. And I just want to invite you, those that are struggling like me in some area, will you join me on this journey? I want to invite you to maybe personally come up to me and share you know, something that God's brought to mind and that you want to concentrate on. Or maybe via email, or maybe not at all. Um, but I do ask that you connect with somebody and share it with them. So that we can truly be witnesses for Jesus in a way that honors him. Now if you're here and you don't know Jesus and don't know the Lord, this is a bad place to step in because the tendency could be to just work hard. So you have a clear conscience. And you can get a warped view of Christianity to just start working and get those legs a-pumping. But I just want to encourage you, first, your first step should be to acknowledge your relationship with God and Jesus first. Take time to understand that first before you jump into this. You know, I started with my dad. And uh, happy Father's Day coming up here. He's a great dad. I love him. His life has spoke volumes to me. Um, and I thank you for that. Paul's life speaks volumes in the scriptures. Felix's life speaks volumes about who he is. My life is speaking volumes. And some of those things I don't want it to speak and your life is speaking a message to other people, what is it saying? Will you pray with me? God, we want to be authentic and real. We don't want to be fake. And so if there's just nothing that you're speaking to us right now, we'll acknowledge that. But if there is, God, would you help us to respond to that? to take a step, whatever small step it may be. Mine is a, a very small step, not having pop for 25 days. God, will you help us to live lives that speak volumes for Jesus? It's in your name we pray. Amen.